Today's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Again, that's Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Please, ride for, please rise for the reading of God's word. <laughs> Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all of your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, and he had agreed, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them up together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of God. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Last week we went over how the Lord would start to answer Pharaoh's question, who's Yahweh? Who's this God? I don't serve God. God serves me. I get to direct my own life. I get to make my own rules. Everything is subject to me. And in many ways, we said Pharaoh, this ancient man, is like the postmodern or post-truth man because in the end, he's man. He's human. And because we are in this sin, this is how sinful people think. You know, why do you got to do this membership class? I just want, no, uh, well, you know, People, people want to do it their own way. And so God is going to answer this question. I will show you who I am. And he started by answering in the first plague, a plague meaning a supernatural event or miracle that affected all of Egypt by turning the Nile into blood. And we went over that. And the second plague, God has frogs come up out of the Nile. And the frogs... Um, would have been reminiscent of the goddess Heket in uh, ancient Egyptian religion and culture. Um, if you see drawings now, even when we have archeological finds and digs, we see that 
there was a goddess with a frog's head. And so we know that there is a god and, or a deity with that has something to do with frogs. And we see this as a direct challenge to what the Egyptians thought was their culture, pride, religion, their identity. Um, this is what we can stand on. You, you're saying, you know, God, you're you. You're the God of slaves. You're the God of these Israelites. But we're Egyptians. We have our own gods. And so you might think, who's Hecate? And why a frog? Well, Hecate was the goddess of fertility. And um, the reason why a lot of scholars believe that a frog was chosen to depict Hecate was when the Nile, remember we started off with the Nile. And this is very, this is, this is something that I hope that we follow along. There's a reason why every single plague happens. There's a reason why it happens the way it happens. And it's not just random, right? And so thinking of that, we see that when the Nile, and we talked about Nile last week, but when the Nile would recede from its flooding stage, every, every, every season they would flood, and it would recede, finally, leaving behind ponds and marshes, and then the sound of frogs could be heard, and it would fill the air, as now the frogs would claim these ponds and marshes and these waters. And to the Egyptian, the sound of frogs were beautiful, because it meant that the God who controlled the Nile, so they believed, now is making the land fertile. And now that work is completed. It demonstrated that that God, Hapi, was active and that he was the one that controlled soil deposits, made the land fertile, guaranteeing now the next harvest because it was flood after the harvest and when it would recede, we know that there was good enough soil for the next harvest. So people are happy now. But... Uh, we may not necessarily think um, that frogs are like beautiful, nice creatures. I don't know, maybe some of you do, but to the Egyptian, it was beautiful. It signified that not only the land was fertile, but it just signified fertility in general, the body being fertile. Um, a lot of midwives, they were called servants of Hecate. Uh, they had not just themselves, but people, if you wanted to get pregnant or you were pregnant and you wanted to give a healthy birth, they would have amulets of Hecate, of frogs. And after the harvest, now's the time, right? After the harvest, you, you got enough money, you got the stable house, you got married, you know, you got a job, time to make babies. In fact, the ancient Egyptians thought that as well. They thought in that line too. So women would wear these Hecate amulets when they were pregnant so they could have good terms of pregnancy and eventually birth. But you see here, God would take something that they thought was a desirable thing and he turns it into something loathsome and utterly overwhelming. Um, is this true for us? You know, how does this relate to us? And I think it does. I think it does still, even if you call yourself a Christian. Get married, get a house, get a stable job. And ultimately, what's the goal? To make babies. And so they thought so too. And so a lot of the, our drive and our will is centered around that. And babies are 
by the way, I love babies. I, I was um, I was driving to the affinity uh, group picnic yesterday with my wife when she was driving. I was tagging along. Um, and, and as she was driving, you know, both of us were getting hangry because it was time to eat. And then this, this, uh, this entrance to Rostock Parks was closed, so we had to drive up all the way to, like, exit one or something in the Palisades Parkway, get up, and then drive all the way back down. And then so comments would start coming out because you're hangry. Uh, why is this biker in the middle of the road? And like, who runs in this weather? Why is this car driving so slow? And this hanger is coming up. And then uh, my wife mentioned that uh, we, she hopes that some babies come. And I kid you not, and I was telling the parents this, my hanger subsided. I was like, yes, I hope the babies come. But it's a real thing where we elevate babies and it's a beautiful blessing. Don't get me wrong. This is something that we must enjoy and celebrate. But what happens, and Tim Keller says this often, but what happens when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing? What that means is we take something good, a blessing, like the sign of frogs, seeing the land is fertile, enjoying it, but make it, making it higher than God. What does that mean? It would play out, meaning my eyes are now turned to making babies or just babies in general. What does that mean? That means all my energy, all my attention, all my will is in something that is not God. It could be babies. And so if I direct all my energy, all my attention, all my time to even a baby, and it's higher and it becomes the ultimate thing, what happens? And we see it becomes overwhelming. And I want, I, want you, I want us to remember this word overwhelming throughout the plagues that we're going to go over today. But it's true. It plays out even in our very lives. What happens when you give the baby everything and all your attention, 100%? The baby thinks as it grows that they are the bomb. They are it. They start resenting the parents who gave them everything. And we see this take place in our society and culture today. My parents didn't give me enough. If my parents made a little bit more money, I could have gone to a better school. I blame them. If they made a little more money or they lived in a better neighborhood, I would have had better friends, better clothes, better things. So I blame them. And so how does that happen? It happens because kids literally think that they are the center of the world. And it happens because the baby's elevated above God. And God is showing not only that this overwhelming, you can't handle this, but this overwhelmingly is loathsome to the entire country. When you elevate something above God, it becomes loathsome. And we see that happening and playing out in every culture, not just this ancient culture, but even in our culture, our culture, this Asian, most of us are Asian immigrants, Korean immigrants, it's starting to change. It's starting to change. It used to be, I need to really please my parents. But the new generation that's coming up, the really young ones, not you guys, you guys are cool. But the new generation that's coming up is my parents didn't do enough. I wish they could have done this. I could have gone to a better school. I would have gotten more recognition on my social media. 
or wherever I am standing. But God would take a frog, which is a desirable thing, and turn it into something loathsome, loathsome and utterly overwhelming because this is not the way it should be. What's good is good, but it is not ultimate. And that is something that we see here in the Bible. In verses 8 and 10, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. This overwhelming, you can't handle. Once it becomes your God, you can't handle it, even if it's your own child. And it's shown here in the Bible. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Fine, take this away. And then I'll let you go worship God. Then you can worship God. Then you can make God one. And Moses said, please be to command me, which means in an honorific way. He's still being honorific to Pharaoh. When I am to plead for you and your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And then Pharaoh responds, tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. Um, which says a lot of things. If you get a conviction, I should do this. I should make God number one. I should serve the church more. I should worship him. But your answer is tomorrow. Then I want you to read what Pharaoh does. Tomorrow. Moses says, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like our Yahweh. And then... After the frogs died, everywhere they would start gathering them. What they thought was beautiful, people, you can imagine, all the scholars and um, the historians are now writing these things. Like, imagine just walking and frogs are just covered. You can't even take a step without stepping on a frog. And so people would just have to gather them and then push them, sweep them up into big heaps. And now they start to rot. And what was beautiful becomes terrible but because there was a respite because there was some peace now some rest at least now we made roads that we can walk right at least now i can function normally again he hardened his heart again and did not let the people go which leads to the third plague the gnats a lot of scholars think this was directed against the what they believed god to be geb which was the god of the earth or dust, something like creation. Um, we had the Nile, we had the frogs, and now we have dust or gnats. Um, this is what John J. Davis writes in his book. The priests in Egypt were noted for their physical purity. Daily rites were performed by a group of priests known as the Uab or pure ones. Their purity was basically physical rather than spiritual. They were circumcised, shaved the hair from heads and bodies, washed frequently, were dressed in beautiful linen robes. In the light of this, it would seem rather doubtful that the priesthood in Egypt could function very effectively, having been polluted by the presence of these insects. They, like their worshipers, were inflicted with the pestilence of this occasion. Their prayers were made ineffective by their own personal impurity with the presence of gnats on their bodies. Imagine this. We are in a world where we think, you know what? If I want to look better, feel better, be better, I gotta be healthier. I gotta start running, gotta start doing some exercise, some lifting, and I gotta eat well. But imagine this, as much as you eat well, and even if you exercise perfectly, had the best diet, you don't get that six pack. 
Instead, you just get a big belly, and the belly just gets bigger. And then you try to eat better, you exercise harder, and it's perfect. It's like every piece of protein you eat is 99% just protein, no fat, that kind of thing. You buy like pounds and tons of codfish, and all you do is eat codfish, um, but you just keep on getting a belly. So what they believed and they worshiped was their physical bodies. And this God showed this God of the earth, they were shown in their physical attributes, saying, look at me. Look how good I look. Look at the way I dress. Look at my body. And the gnats totally destroyed that. Because by having gnats all over them, they couldn't even go outside. And if you've ever seen gnats and you've ever had gnats on you, it's disgusting. They bite and then you get like, you know, skin gets start to uh, get blistered or even show sign of allergic reactions. So all these things are happening to them and nothing they do is working. No diet is working. No exercise regimen is working. In fact, the magicians, magicians were a type of priest. They would try to mimic this, but this time they were able to do with the frogs and that, but this time on this third plague, they were not able to. And they were only able to reply, this must be the finger of God. But Pharaoh would not relent. His heart was hardened, as the Lord said. And so even at this point, where everything they thought was right, you know what? This is what young people think. You know, I need to look good for the summer. And it is the summer. It's 100 degrees, but it, it is kind of the summer. And you want to look good. You eat a little less. You exercise a little more. And then you look good for your Insta. I don't know, whatever, whatever way you do it, you do it. But then imagine all that not working, all that stuff being useless, pointless, and nothing you do works. And this priest, these type of priests would eventually admit this is the finger of God. We can't do anything about this. And yet Pharaoh's heart is still hardened, and he would not let the people go. Which brings us to the fourth plague. And this is the final plague we're going to do today. But the fourth plague is flies. But the actual translation, the actual word is swarms. Um, we just know it to be flies because uh, there is a Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And in the Septuagint, they say flies. So we assume that the, the swarms of insects that the Hebrew Bible is saying it are flies. Um, which makes sense, kind of, because by this time, all the frogs are rotting, and so flies are going to come in, lay their larvae, right, in the decaying bodies. But it says in the text that, the God, that God sends the swarms. And these particular type of flies in the Septuagint is, they say it's dog flies. Um, excuse me. Dog flies are what we know today as gadflies or horse flies. In Jersey, I think a lot of people know them as greenheads as well. Um, when I, I grew up in Queens, I didn't grow up in Jersey. And growing up in Queens, when it's the summertime, now you have, you know, there's the nice body, you got the gnats, right? You got the nice body, then it's time to go to the beach. We went to Jones Beach, right? Or Moses, Robert Moses Park, wherever it was. And if you grew up in New York, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And as people start to move over to Jersey, 
my friends would start moving, started moving over to Jersey and said, you got to go to Jersey Shore. It's much better than that ghetto Jones Beach where you have syringes everywhere. Uh, I never saw a syringe, but apparently everybody thinks Long Island beaches are ghetto, so I had to go to Jersey Shore. So when my friends started moving over to Jersey, we went to Jersey Shore. We didn't know exactly what beach was good, so we went and we just drove down uh, Jersey, and then there was a sign that said, beware of flies. Eh, just how bad could it be? But uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but this is my first experience of the Jersey Shore. We got out of the car, a friend took off his shirt, he had his uh, swimming trunks on, and he was going to uh, the beach, and all of a sudden, all these flies came. And on his back, it looked like he was wearing another shirt because all the flies would cover his back. And these aren't just flies. These are horse flies or greenheads, and they bite. And so if you don't know about these flies, um, flies, especially female flies, they need uh, blood. Uh, but they don't, they're not like mosquitoes. They don't just suck blood. They, they have like pincers in their mouths, but they're like saws. They're jagged edges. So they basically just cut into the skin. So before, usually for humans, before they can draw blood, it hurts so much that you have to flinch or hit it away. But his back was covered, so he just started running around yelling, like, ah, because there's flies all over his back. And then I said, this is Jersey Shore. So that was my first experience of Jersey Shore. Um, flies, especially dog flies, are not a good thing. Imagine, now imagine, not just covered with gnats, not just covered with frogs, covered with these dog flies or horse flies. Horse flies are named horse flies because they would, their, their, their pincers or their jaws would be able to penetrate the horse's skin or cattle's skin. That's why all of a sudden you would see in farms just cows charging each other because it hurts so much and they couldn't do anything about it. And so these flies are not good flies. In fact, I hate those kind of flies. Uh, when I did visit Egypt, they had so many flies that I couldn't take a nap. Because as soon as you close your eyes, all the flies went around your eyes to suck out the liquid. It's gross. So I would put on like a little lace. I, I took like a tablecloth or something, put it over my face, and then all the flies just stuck to the tablecloth. It was pretty gross. But imagine just the whole land being covered with this infestation. Um, in verse 21, it says, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And if you thought the Nile had it bad, then you got one up by the frogs. And if you thought the frogs were bad, it was one up by these gnats. And if you thought the gnats weren't nasty enough or annoying enough, now this. The depiction of flies and other insects are found in ancient Egypt artifacts on charms and like they literally had charms with flies on them. And they would hold these charms because in ancient Egypt mythology, they gave protection against disease and misfortune. Flies were persistent, so you wanted to continue to fight and have this um, fight against any kind of disease or misfortune. So sto stone amulets were found in the form of flies. And they were being, archaeologists have found they were being made in Egypt as early as 3500 B.C. approximately. And so the flies were depicted on various ritual artifacts, and they were called even magic wands at certain points. 
and they were carved from like a hippopotamus ivory. And it probably was intended to protect whoever owned this charm. But here for the first time, there is something that we haven't seen before in the text. Here in the first time, it says, this is nasty, this is terrible, but God is saying, I am going to protect Goshen. It's going to be everywhere in Egypt except Goshen, the, people where his peop the, the place where his people reside. God is showing here that he will set apart his people that live in Goshen. Why does God set them apart? In verse 22, it says this, that the Egyptians would know that Yahweh was in the midst of the earth. Yahweh is on the earth. You know, currently we meet every Saturday morning as a church, and we pray together. We pray together for the church. In what way? One of the ways we pray for our church is for its holiness. And holiness, we know, is to be set apart. So why is it important that the church be holy? Holy. Because God is holy. And God shows his character through his people. We see here that God set apart Goshen, not just because, hey, I like these guys. In fact, these guys that we're mentioning here would give him a hard time, would continue to complain all the way through the wilderness, always complaining. But God sets apart his people to show his character. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it says God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He sets apart his people, which is holiness, to show the rest of the world who he is. So do we as a church regard holiness as something incredibly important, incredibly pivotal, imperative to our Christian life? And we see here that God does. God does. Every time we talk about holiness, a lot of our young people, we think, oh, it's about, excuse me, it's about sexual purity. And yes, it is. It is about sexual purity. It is about all these things. But it's about more than that. This is why we need to fight for holiness in the church. This is why we don't say holiness is a suggestion. It's an imperative. We need to stop thinking that holiness is an option. Yes, we may not be perfect, but that doesn't mean we stop or ever stop striving for it. You know, it's true. This is true physically. It's true emotionally. And it's surprising that we wouldn't think that it's, tr not, tr it's not true spiritually. You know, our whole life is at stake when we forego the pursuit of holiness. Physically, of course, when we keep on eating donuts and these fatty foods and things that aren't healthy for you, yeah, we're going to be like, you're going to live till 30, bro, and then you got to stop eating those donuts. We think that, right? And when we do, the, when we overload on emotional, emotionalism, things like we always watch sad movies or depressing things and you constantly fill yourself with this stuff, you're like, you got to stop with the K-drama or whatever it is. You got to stop with it. And you got to watch something nice and upbeat, or you got to take in something healthy, even emotionally. But why not spiritually? Because our whole life is at stake when we forego the pursuit of holiness. 
This is Jeff Bridges on his book, The Pursuit of Holiness. And this is a, a little bit of a long quote, so I hope you listen well. He writes this, Too often we say we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated. We are simply disobedient. It might be good if we stop using the terms victory and de defeat to describe our progress in holiness. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. When I say I am defeated by some sin, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I am saying something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I am disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may in fact be defeated, but the reason we are defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. We need to brace ourselves up and to realize that we are responsible for our thoughts, attitudes, and actions. We need to reckon on the fact that we didn't die to sin's reign, that it no longer has any dominion over us, that God has united us with the risen Christ in all his power and has given us the Holy Spirit to work in us. Only as we accept our responsibility and appropriate God's provisions will we make any progress in our pursuit of holiness. Now back to the flies. Interestingly enough, the magicians no longer even try to replicate the miracles that God is doing. They're defeated, right? After the gnats. Pharaoh has no one to turn to, and he literally asks for intercessory prayer. Please help me. Please pray to God for me. Okay, I will, but don't cheat on your promise. And after the flies go away, guess what happens? He cheats. You know, these three plagues show this overwhelmingness about God. What you consider good or even a good luck charm. And we have our ways of manifesting. Sure, I, I don't think any of us carry, maybe, maybe some of us do, this is not meant, I didn't know you did, but maybe but some of us carry a charm of a frog for whatever reason, but we don't carry these good luck charms around. But we have our own ways of manifesting these charms. Like even the God of fertility, we have tests, like you have to pass this test. If you pass these 10 tests that Huffington Post said, then you're okay for, to be my boyfriend, that kind of thing. Um, I have a friend, this is a true story, that when he went out on a blind date. He, he said this line, but he said this line as a test. And I asked some people yesterday to see if they knew the line. But he said, let's go for dessert. And then she's after dinner. And she said, okay, let's go for dessert. Because, you know, you got to leave the gun, take the cannoli. And then she responded, okay, that's like 20%. That's, that's better than I thought. Uh, she responded, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. And to him, he said, this is not going to work. <laughs> he literally said, this is not going to work. You don't know, leave the gun, take the cannoli. This is not going to work. And so we all have our things. As ridiculous as you may think that sounds. By the way, that's from Godfather. Um, we, we, all we all have these things. We all have manifestations of these charms and these guys that, that we make ultimate before God. You know, God says, look to me in all these things. Look to me. When you are going through these stages in life, what's your life stage? 
You know, are you single? Are you looking to get married? Who do you look to? Are you looking to your charms? Are you looking to your tests? Are you looking to the things of this world? Or are you looking to God? When we take good things like fertility and babies, our physical bodies, and like even charms can be, could have been construed or understood as medicine and drugs, we make them into things that are higher than God, then we see that they, these things, cannot pass the test. And neither can those that stand with them. But that's who we are, you know? Maybe things got a little rough for us. Please intercede for me. I can't take this. This is too much. This life stage, I cannot bear. This physical body thing, I cannot bear. This addiction I have, I cannot bear. But as soon as things lighten up, who's God? I don't know who God is. Because we're not capable of keeping the things that is not ultimate, ultimate. And you know, you want to replace something that we once had ultimate? Maybe we thought that Hecate or Gab or all these other gods, they were our ultimate. We had our own charms. And now we know that these are wrong. You know, you can find that in a secular magazine, too. You can find that in anything. We got to stop thinking this way. You got to stop looking at our significant other for identity. But guess what? That doesn't last long. We were like, yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. We can't. I, I, I had doctor friends who would come up to me and say, you know, I can't focus all my energy on my baby. I love my baby a lot, but I got to know that my time, me time is me time. And this baby will know. Guess what happened after a few years? That doesn't, it doesn't work out like that. It doesn't. Because we as humans cannot replace what we made ultimate unless we have something else to replace it with that actually is ultimate. And God is saying, I am the ultimate. I am stronger than all these things. You worship Hecate, you worship Gab, you worship all these other gods, but I am the true God. I am Yahweh, and I'm going to show you who I am. The Hebrew phrase swarm had a grievous kind of feel to it. It speaks of something like an oppressive yoke. And this is what one scholar wrote. It may also carry the idea of massive numbers of abundance. This communicates the intensity and the severity of the plague and that all in the land are experiencing the wrath of Yahweh. This oppressive thing like a yoke is real and it's something that we are facing even now. Just turn on whatever, your phone, the TV, whatever it is, and you see this is the standard you have to live by. But it's a false standard. Who made that up? Did Hecate make it up? Who made that up? And this burden, this oppressive yoke, we cannot bear. But then someone comes along and he literally, literally, excuse me, says these words, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Where's that from? It's from Matthew 11 where he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle 
and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your soul. Stop putting all your weight on the foolish things that are not God. Because when it leans back on you, you won't be able to stand. In fact, you'll be crushed. You know, if you really think about it, these plagues, and you're going to see it. We're only on plague number four, but these plagues are almost like, it is like a deconstruction. It's like a decreation. When we move away from God, we see that creation itself is now deconstructing. And what was meant to be good, what was meant to be a blessing, become curses. Because we move away from God. And if we lean on these things and we make these ultimate things, if we make these things that aren't God ultimate, then when it leans back, you get crushed. And Jesus is saying, instead, lean on me. Take my yoke. Instead of stressing about how you look today or tomorrow, put your energy into looking at Jesus. Instead of worrying about what life stage you need to take care of next and putting all your energy on that, consider what you need to do to work out your salvation that has eternal bearings. Instead of putting your hope in these short-lived and false promises of the world, cast your cares on Jesus because he cares for you. And we know that this isn't possible if we just try to do it with our own strength. No, it isn't, because we've tried. I've read enough magazines. I've tried enough self-help books that it's short-lived. It doesn't work. But it's only possible if we say, I need an intercessor. And we have an intercessor given to us. The intercessor is the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Let's pray right now and ask the Holy Spirit to intercede for us. Lord, we know that even if we say this, this true understanding and change and ultimately transformation can only come by your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, lead us into understanding that transforms us by the renewing of our minds. And so as the Spirit leads you, leads our church, let's pray now and lift up the concerns, the anxieties, the cares that we have and give it to Jesus because he will take it. He will put his yoke on you. His burden is light. It's easy because he has conquered the world and he cares for you. What is it that's paralyzing you, that's crushing you now? Lift it up unto Jesus. Let's pray.